Good day and welcome to Overdrive, a program that puts a magnifying glass to the role of cars and transport in our society and ends up burning a hole in it. I'm David Brown and in this program we have a quick road test of the just launched Audi Q5 medium-sized SUV. It's a plug-in hybrid electric vehicle. We also have a longer discussion with Dean and Evan about the Toyota Corolla GR. It's not your traditional Corolla. And in our feature segment, we talk to Mark Byrne, who compiled the Total Environment Centre's rating of electric vehicles. He's not backward in naming the companies that did not do as well as he would have liked. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au or our social pages, Facebook, Instagram and YouTube. Just search for Cars Transport Culture. Programs are also podcast on iTunes and Spotify. This program was originally broadcast on the 4th of August 2023. Audi has just launched a new variant of their Q5 medium-sized SUV. It is a plug-in hybrid electric vehicle, which gives it flexibility. It can also reduce pollution in urban areas, but gee, it also comes with some good performance, of which Audi is emphasising. There are two models, the typical SUV shape or a sportsback body style that gives a fastback look. Both models have a 2-litre turbocharged four-cylinder engine that uses 95 Ron petrol and drives a 7-speed Tiptronic gearbox to an all-wheel drive system. The good points include it has reasonable headroom in the front and good in the back, with the rear seat being adjustable. There's a standard sunroof which reduces any claustrophobic effect. The driver and infotainment screens have fantastic clarity with a lot of information. The electric front seats are standard and it has some interesting use of integrated technology. It uses predictive route data from the navigation database and distance to the vehicle ahead. So when you take your foot off the accelerator, it chooses whether the car can coast or slows with recuperative braking. And also the standard SUV has roof rails with cross members that can detect any weight you might be carrying on them and which alerts and adjusts the electronic stability control because heavy loads can alter the vehicle's centre of gravity. And if using navigation, it can plan for you to arrive on electric power at your destination, so making minimal noise and no local pollution. Some of the limitations you need to be aware of include... It only has AC charging, so it will only trickle power into the battery, and even the best recharging time is still two and a half hours. It weighs over two tonnes, it has a turning circle of 12 metres, it can travel 55 kilometres on electric power, but that's not class leading. The medium-sized Mazda CX-60 we test drove last week can do 76 kilometres, it's not cheap. Before on-road costs, the SUV is $102,900 and the Sportsback is $110,200. Paint colours other than white is an extra $2,000. And a particularly disappointing point is that the head-up display, which is good, but it's not standard. It is part of a nearly $5,000 optional technique package. There's an embargo from Audi on discussing driving impressions until next week, where we will also discuss the current feelings towards plug-in hybrid electric vehicles that, in theory, are well-suited to Australian conditions, 
but they come with some compromises. This is Overdrive across Australia. Would you pay $62,300 for a Toyota Corolla plus on-road costs? And it doesn't have as many features as some other of the Corolla models. The reason that this particular one we've been driving is that it's the hot hatch called the GR. Our good friend Evan Jones has been driving it with me as we look at it as a particularly high-performance vehicle. Evan, first things first, the colour is feverish red mica metallic. You noticed it particularly was good in the sunlight? Yeah, where we had it parked, it was in the shade where it looked nice. And then when we moved it into the sun, it just burst into life. It was very, very pleasing in colour. I think with the black accents, contrasting accents on the car and the black wheels, helped to pop the colour of the car even more. I was very impressed with that. Our resident artist, Dean Oliver, liked the colour of the car, but struggled with the wheels. I still remain unconvinced about black wheels, David. Yeah, maybe with time I will grow to to appreciate them. I like the colour. Ferocious red, you said it's called. Ferocious red mica metallic. Okay, mica metallic, yes. I like the red. It's a a kind of burgundy red with a a very deep metallic sheen to it. And I I like it because it's not a brilliant day-glow kind of red or cadmium red. It's very much a, a more muted, richer kind of red, uh, which is lovely. And it, it, it goes well with the black accents on the car and even the black wheels. And, of course, it's got the obligatory red brake calipers. Uh, looking at the styling, David, I mean, I've seen a couple of the little uh, Yaris uh, GRs uh, flying around the place, and they're distinctive, but in an angular kind of way. But yet that styling hasn't gone across to the Corolla the wheel arches and the, the tack-on bits are, are quite rounded, sort of really quite matching the, the Corolla's styling, which I really like. It doesn't shout out uh, tack-on bits. Uh, it looks very much like the designers have, have kept the sort of visual cues of the Corolla, but a second glance and there's a lot more going on there, and uh, it, it's, it's quite a spectacularly styled car. I'm really growing to like it the more I'm looking at it. Well, it doesn't look manufactured. Yes, you're right. Yes, yeah, it doesn't. It looks quite individual, yeah. As though a graphic designer has just thrown a few of the standard sorts of features and then kept throwing them for a while, a la the Toyota CHR. <laughs> I was just thinking about CHR. When you think of designers throwing things at the uh, at the computer screen. But first and foremost, this Corolla GR is a performance car. So what's it like to gently drive it around the urban streets? and then perhaps enjoy it for what it is mainly made for. Evan takes up the story. See, it was surprisingly easy to drive, surprisingly pleasant to drive. When you're getting, if you're driving it quietly, you know you're driving a Corolla, which is meant to be driven easily. It's a Corolla's designed to be, a, as I look at it, a reliable, dependable shopping hatch that's not very exciting. But this car was all those, but it wasn't, Unexciting. It was actually even driven quietly. It was quite pleasing. It's got a bit of noise to it, though. I mean, and it's got low-profile tyres, which are going to feel the bumps more than perhaps your base model Corolla. But the purchasers being aimed at would be well aware of that. And uh, compared to some other performance cars I've driven, the ride was almost plus. And the gear change? 
Fantastic. Fantastic. I was really impressed with the gear change. And clutch? The clutch is reasonably light, but has lots of feel to it. You can feel the pickup point or the take-up point, if you like, in the clutch quite easily, which makes it a very easy car to drive in traffic. Toyota have other models in their lineup, which I'm not going to mention today, uh, which are designed to be performance vehicles, and their clutches are horrible. There's no feel to them whatsoever. This one, within two or three applications, it was very familiar and very easy to use. You're not just talking about the manual Corolla. You're talking about some of the manual sports car. Yes. We haven't driven 86 of them, but we've uh, driven some. Now, this little Corolla, a performance car, but perhaps an unusual engine? The three-cylinder engine, which um, I find interesting. I'm not sure what exhaust note we were expecting to get from a three-cylinder engine, but as it turns out, it was a good one. I must read up on why they went down the path of a three-cylinder rather than a four-cylinder. Less um, inertia, inertia mass in the engine itself, maybe. It did the job. It really did the job. It's got 221 kilowatts of power. But mind you, that's at 6,500 revs and 370 newton metres of torque. But again, in a wide rev band, but one that starts at 3,000 and goes to 5.5, that's a little bit higher than most torque figures that you might expect. Yeah, probably, but you've got to remember that kilowatt number is higher than a lot of V8s from the 80s and 90s too. <laughs> Cars are five times the capacity of that thing, you know. So They've done well. 98 Ron, you've got to pump into it. Yeah. And a six-speed manual, it gets on average 8.4 litres per 100 rated, but uh, driving them around, I think ours, you couldn't zero the the numbers on the fuel consumption we couldn't work out how to. So to know how our driving was resulting in the fuel consumption. That's true. We had a figure that has probably included a lot of my colleagues, and that was 9.6 to 9.8. Which is not bad for a car that gets thrashed. I think I reduced it a bit because I drove gently down on a motorway for a while. It is rated as 8.4, as I say, but 11.1 in the urban environment. That's not surprising. But I've got to say, we talked about it being easy to drive, and and it's got the noise and the sound of it. I drove it on some very twisting roads. I thought the handling of it was stunning. Once you got going and you turned into a corner and the corner tightened up or then eased out, it just did everything the same. It didn't get quirky or different or it was just so precise. It's a four-wheel drive, and it's got a thing you can change it to 30% of the power to the front wheels and 70 to the rear. That's sporty. Or the reverse was 60 to the front, 40 to the rear. If you were driving on the open road where you could make a difference with that, I suspect you're being reprehensible. It was just got so much grip to it. It is, of course, made for the track in that regard. There is a third setting, which is custom, which you can adjust it how you want it with that custom setup once you know what you're doing, mm. which is fantastic. It had a race button, didn't it? Yes. Eco, normal, sport and race. Now, we didn't feel a lot of diff- much difference at all between sport and race, so I can only assume that race kicks in when you're really gunning it probably around a track. I think all-wheel drive is very important for a little car like that, although it's, it's the Corolla and it weighs about 1,915 kilograms, that's not insignificant. That's more than a Commodore is used to. 
that probably because of all the drivetrain equipment. You know, you've got four axles and yes, extra long drive shaft, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and probably some extra bracing in the in, in the body as well. So it's the same engine, but a slightly more horsepower out of it than the Yaris GR, which is a smaller, and I'm not sure how much less it weighs. I've tried to find information on the Toyota web press page, but it's not easy. Front brakes looked sizable. Oh, no, no, incredible. And they had a lovely feel. The brakes were really easy to get used to. And the rear brakes weren't small either. They were bigger than a number of front brakes that we looked at today as well. So <laughs> We're referring to a more bulk market car that we happen to notice. Yes. The front brakes, 356 millimetres ventilated disc with four-pot calibre. That's 14 inches. That's bigger than all your V8s that we were talking about earlier. It's almost bigger than some of their wheels. Yes. The rear brake on the Corolla was 297, so that's, what, 12 inches or so. Close enough, yeah. I like it in a car that's solid under power. Yeah. Right? It's all very well to have a lot of power, but I like it when it gets it to the ground in a predictable and solid manner, and this certainly did that. It certainly it makes you feel very confident to drive it. If you can drive a manual, you're in that car for about four or five minutes and you feel like you've driven it for years. It's so confidence-inspiring. But it doesn't make you feel like a hoon. That's the other thing. I suppose that's the feeling at the end of the day, I'm still driving a Corolla, which doesn't put you off but doesn't let you get overawed or overconfident. And I think that's a good thing. Oh, they've got they've made, they made a good car here. We had to take it back and then pick up a Kluger, which was a much more family-oriented vehicle. But we'll talk about that maybe next week. Evan, lovely to talk to you. Thanks very much for your time. No worries, mate. And that's Evan Jones, our road test engineer and safety expert, talking about the real hot hatch of the Toyota Corolla GR. This is Overdrive across Australia. Mark Byrne, Energy and Transport Analyst at the Total Environment Centre. Mark, you've started a rating system for electric vehicles and you give ratings within three broad categories. What are they? They are lifetime carbon emissions, sustainable technology and a rating of the car maker. So probably the most important one for most people would be the carbon emissions in the manufacture of the car where it's driven and what happens at the end of its life cycle. Um, so we've given that 50%. Um, the 25% on sustainable technologies is because it's a pretty new space. So we wanted to kind of identify what some car makers were doing that was original and groundbreaking uh, or best practice as opposed to the ones that were just kind of, you know, fronting up with a, a kind of minimalist conversion from an internal combustion engine platform. And the third one, end of life cycle, what you do with the batteries in particular is going to be more of a concern later, but uh, it turns out that the, the carbon emissions in particular are not, don't vary a great deal between the, the cars that we were looking at. So we've given that a, a kind of smaller percentage of the overall marking. You give positive points, don't you? The higher they score, the better they are. So it's not as if the, the lower the energy consumption, then you'd get higher points. That's right. The only thing that we give lower points for a penalty is greenwashing and what we call FUD, fear, uncertainty and doubt. So that's the practice of undermining the 
EV or the energy transition in order to perpetuate the sale of fossil fuel cars. And there were some some cases of that. Fundamentally here, this is an overall rating that really takes on a broad community attitude, well, what may reflect a full community attitude, not just how efficient is it to drive or how much does it cost me per week? That's right. Um, we've tried to be as comprehensive as possible. And, of course, that makes it you know quite complex, especially comparing cars that um, don't have similar metrics. Like there are a few car makers that do life cycle analyses of their cars, um, but they don't all use the international standard for that. And Tesla has its own way of going about things, probably not surprisingly. So it does make them difficult to compare, but, you know, we've given it our best shot for the first guide and, you know, we'll see if we can get funding to update it and refine it, take on suggestions for improvement. One of the last in the category of sustainable technologies is other innovative technologies. What sort of things are you including in that? The one that I found most interesting early on was aerodynamics. So, you know, how much effort have they gone to to make a slippery car? The first one that comes to mind as what not to do is a Volvo XC40. You know, in other respects, a really good car, but it's a, it's a, bit, a bit of a brick. Compare that to, say, the, Ionic, the Hyundai mm. Ionics, um, uh, the, the 5 and the 6. The 5, a bit like the Volvo, is a bit of a brick and has not very good aerodynamics, even though it's, it's a great car in other respects whereas the Ionic 6 is very slippery, so we've given it more points. But there are other things like the use of green steel and, and green aluminium and the voltage of arch architecture, whether it's 400 or 800 volts. 800 volts gives you a lighter load from cabling and other electrical parts of the car. So that's a good thing. Uh, the use of non-metal body parts, you know, carbon fibre and other um, non-metal parts that will be less energy intensive to uh, manufacture, the use of heat pumps for heating, use of recycled plastics and other innovative materials in the cabin, which is kind of something that some car makers are very keen to promote, and whether or not the, the factories that the cars were made in were powered by 100% renewable energy. Car makers' policy positions this is particularly important. You have one, one category within that that is all EV date. In other words, something like a Tesla is all EV, so yeah. they would get a maximum, I guess, of five down to zero. Some, yeah. This is all EV. This is not just electrification because a lot of car companies say, I'm getting electrification, but they might only be, to some degree, mild hybrids. That's quite a cautious step towards it, isn't it? That's not an EV is going the full way. That's right. And I think car makers are using mild hybrids like Subarus or plug-in hybrids to, or like Peugeot, I think is, is one example that started with plug-in hybrids, um, to kind of test the waters. But I, I think that the world has moved on from plug-in hybrids being the best solution in most cases. And now they're just kind of, as I say in the background report, lipstick on a pig. Um, you're kind of getting the, both, the, the worst of both worlds. You've got the weight of two drivetrains or two power sources, you know, all the costs associated with servicing an ICE car, and then you've got the electric on top of that, and most people 
according to some recent reports, don't use plug-in hybrids the optimum way, and therefore the the fuel consumption or, or carbon emissions are higher than the ICE equivalent. So we wanted to steer right away from hybrids. They are really not necessary anymore. Supply chain, it's not just what the company does, but people that deliver to them as well. That's right. The, the canary in the coal mine here is usually cobalt or the scapegoat. People are very much aware of the human rights and environmental degradation caused by um, what they call small-scale or artisanal mining of cobalt in uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo. I think most of the companies have made some effort to, first of all, be well-informed about where their cobalt and other critical minerals and rare earth minerals are coming from, how they're mined, and then how they're transported, and the um, carbon emissions in manufacturing as well. So, yeah, it's, it's about identifying where the problems are and trying to address them at source where possible. That's a very important point because quite often one company will bring in uh, rules and regulations to suit their profitability, but it comes at immense cost to people that are supplying them. And that can also work in terms of pollution. If you insist on trucks arriving within a very constricted time, 15-minute time frame, then a truck has to sit outside waiting for a long time just in case and, yeah. and idling all the time. That's creating a lot of pollution, unless they're electric trucks. That's right. There's no, You don't even need um, stop-start functionality in here. The final one I, I'm really interested in, greenwashing or undermining the FUD, if you could describe that to me again. Okay, so greenwashing is about making the cars to be more environmentally friendly than they are. And one of the examples of that I've got in the report is BYD saying they are, quote, official sponsors of Mother Nature, which is just kind of silly. And maybe they don't expect people to believe it, but um, some people might. But there's nothing behind that, that claim. So that's greenwashing. So the other one, um, FUD, fear, uncertainty, doubt, is what's normally attributed primarily worse than anyone else to Toyota and the role that they've had in trying to slow down the adoption of EVs because it's not something that they have developed to any great extent. And even the single EV that they have got on the road has had some recalls for pretty serious things like wheels falling off. So they have a vested interest in slowing down the transition, whereas you know, the climate crisis, which we're seeing in the Northern Hemisphere at the moment, uh, requires that we decarbonise as quickly as possible. So when Toyota, for instance, says, as they did a couple of weeks ago, hey, we've got a, we're working on solid state batteries uh, that are going to you know, be much, much more energy dense and reduce the weight of cars and they're going to be great. They'll revolutionise the industry. We'll have them in 2028. So the, the subtext there is, hey, guys, don't buy a car now. Don't buy an EV now anyway. Just buy another Toyota. And then we can step up to a, an EV maybe in five years' time. But we don't have five years. We have to kind of get this transition to EVs going as fast as possible from an environmental point of view anyway. So we kind of call that out. The thing that kind of really rammed this home for me was the fact that the average Australian car is lasts is on the road for probably about 17 years. And so when you buy a new car, 
So 90, over 90% of new cars are still fossil fueled. You're really baking in carbon emissions for an average of 17 years. And that's a lot of carbon dioxide in the air that needn't have been there if you'd have bought an EV. It's even worse than you know, in other sectors where if you don't act now, you can act next year. But if in the, in the case of buying passenger cars, if you don't act now and buy you know, something else that isn't an EV, then you're really having a long-term negative impact on the fight against climate change. You've rated, uh, given a negative score in that area of greenwashing to Hyundai and the Ionic 6 and that, yet uh, my understanding is, of course, that Hyundai has committed immense resources to trying to promote electric vehicles as much as electrification, but as full electric vehicles and doing a lot. Can you remember where you've marked them down? Yeah, it's just the lack of um, specifics around what they call the eco-friendliness of the Ionic 5 and the Ionic 6. And they don't say anything about how that car is actually eco-friendly. So we just think they need to be a lot more specific. And I know Hyundai, you know, they've, they've put some really good cars out there and they, we shouldn't forget the Kona. The Kona's not in here because the old model has... Just been superseded. Been superseded, but the new one didn't have the um, specs available and wasn't available for order at the time when our data collection ceased. But uh, hopefully with a new one, they'll do a life cycle analysis and we'll see that there's a good justification for claims about being eco-friendly. The other thing about companies like Hyundai and Kia is that they're producing good, really good EVs, but they're in tiny numbers you know, compared to their fossil fuel cars. So they're kind of playing both sides of the same of the game promoting EVs, but also promoting their old fossil burners. So we're not very impressed by that kind of technique. It's not as if they don't want to sell the EVs. Uh, something like the Ionic 6 is an unusual-looking car, but has <laughs> a fantastic CD rating coefficient of drag. Yeah. So they've achieved a lot in that regard, but absolutely, but have tended to, for a number of people to poo-poo them from a, a looks point of view. Yeah, I think that was like, it's a really brave car. I mean, if I had the choice between the Ionic 5 and 6, I think I'd choose the 5 just because I, I really like the look of it. Mm. And the 6 is pretty challenging. But from an environmental point of view, that would make me a hypocrite because <laughs> I should buy the 6. I could live with the 6. I've taken a lot of your time, but I appreciate it greatly. Thank you. Oh, it's been good. Thanks for your interest. And that was Mark Byrne from the Total Environment Centre talking about their latest rating of electric vehicles. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Dean Oliver, Evan Jones, Rob Fraser and Mark Wesley for their help with this program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au and for the socials and podcasts, search for Cars, Transport, Culture. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening. <laughs>